Marsha will tell you that I'm not much for artwork. If we go to the Art Institute, I might make it through about 30 minutes. But after about that, everything begins to look the same to me. But that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate good art or good artists. And there's all kinds of art. There's music, right? There's sculpture. There are paintings. And there are also tapestries. Tapestries are art. Tapestry is the ancient technique of weaving threads into a pattern or a picture. And in Europe, the great period of tapestries ran from the 14th century to the end of the 18th century. There was a great demand among the wealthy for wall hangings. They were used for bed and table coverings. And of course, the churches used them as decorations, religious decorations. One of the things that's interesting about tapestries is that the artist who is creating them is unable to see the finished product until it is done. I want you to look up here. This is the back of a tapestry. I don't know if you can see what it is, but if we'll show you the front, that's what it looks like. They look very different. You might not have imagined that that's what the front would look like. Like you see a second tapestry. This is the back. Can anyone imagine what that looks like in the front? Go ahead, show them. Amazing, huh? Now, some tapestries are not as diffused in the back as the front. Can we show them the third tapestry? You might be able to sense what that is, and now the front. They are beautiful, and when you think about it, they are all done from behind, and the artist doesn't see it until the product is finished. This morning, I want us to see tapestry as a metaphor of God's redemptive plan. That God is sovereignly weaving the lives of His saints. That is, His people. That's what God calls us in the Bible. His saints. We're not perfect for those of you who wonder what that means. It just means we're included in His people. He's weaving the lives of His people in His great redemptive plan as threads of a tapestry. And when I think about my life, it may not be very important. I may not have a 50,000 member church. I may not be saving lives in terms of I can tell you that you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, a paramedic working on things, right? I may not be doing great things, but I know that God is doing great things through me because I'm part of a tapestry. A tapestry that is the most beautiful and majestic tapestry that has ever existed. None of us can see what that tapestry actually looks like. We cannot imagine its majesty or beauty because we are seeing it from the backside. So until it is finished, 
All we can do is trust that we are a part of it. At best, if we see it, we see the little thread of our life, and again, that from the backside. But thankfully, as the tapestry that God is weaving is unfolding, He has given us glimpses of it when the prophet spoke about the Messianic kingdom. He has given us glimpses of it in the vision of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelations. And He has given us promises of it through the Messiah, Jesus. Why is this metaphor valuable for us? Well, first of all, we all go through experiences and circumstances, whether we are brand new believers or whether we have been believers for an awfully long time. Regardless of that, we go through these experiences that we don't fully understand. Some of them are hard to navigate. They're confusing. They're discouraging. And we need to be able to have a spiritual perspective on it. We need to see it not as the world sees it, but to see it from God's sovereign purpose. After all, we who have come to believe in Jesus have exchanged that old life of living in the world and seeing things simply through our own eyes as we think benefits us to seeing them through God's eyes and what He is trying to do through our lives in weaving this great tapestry. The big idea this morning is this. Trust God's sovereign purpose will prevail in every circumstance of your life. And this includes our collective life together. Let me repeat that. Trust God's sovereign purpose will prevail in every circumstance of your life. And this includes our collective life together. This is evident in the life of Paul as we continue reading through Acts. In fact, it becomes one of the major themes that we see now as Paul has gone to Jerusalem. We will see it through the next several chapters. We will see God fulfilling His sovereign will of using struggles and trials and difficulties to bring about His purpose. And because Paul is living on mission, that is, he is living as a disciple of Jesus. He is living as though Jesus is the Lord of his life. Not just a part of his life, not a compartmentalized life, but all of his life. Because he is living in that way, he can trust God's sovereign purpose is prevailing in every circumstance. Paul wrote this to the Romans. We know that those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If you're a believer, you're called according to His purpose. If you're living according to His purpose, then you can trust that God is in every circumstance and will use it for His redemptive purpose. This week, our teens are going to challenge. We're going to Kansas City. It's a hot place. And while we're there, 
we're asking them for this trip, and we as those who are there in, in leadership with them, to approach that entire trip as a disciple of Jesus. And the vision is this, to be Jesus to everyone. Not to be like Jesus, but to be Jesus to everyone. Each other, people we meet, strangers. Oh, I've tried to do this before on mission trips. I will promise you that every one of us will fail. But nevertheless, it is worth practicing. It is worth living like this because isn't that what we're called to do? To be Jesus to the rest of the world. So, church, here's a challenge. While your students are out being Jesus for the rest of the week, how about if you try to be Jesus for the rest of the week? And by the way, they'll be journaling every day. And part of their journal will be to write down where they see God and meet God that day. But the other part of that journal will be to reflect on where they were Jesus to others and also to reflect on where they failed to be Jesus to others. So may I invite you to try that same discipline with them. I believe that God will do great things with our young people. Not just at the challenge, but far beyond it. Because we will learn more about the Lordship of Jesus over all of our lives and everything. Now last Sunday, we left Paul at the temple in Jerusalem. And I told you, this is like a great soap opera playing out. And Paul was there reverently respecting Jewish religious tradition because the advice that he was given was to publicly demonstrate his reverence for the law. But when the crowd saw Paul, they just simply mobbed him and beat him. He had become a polarizing figure for the Jews. And when the riot ensued, the Roman soldiers intervened. Now, as we go through Acts 21 from verses 37 through almost uh, through, I think it's verse 29 of um, chapter 22, as we go through those, I want you to know that we can't read it all. But we are going to follow the entire storyline because the storyline's important. And the storyline fits importantly, into next week's message and the week after that. So we want to keep following it and following this thread of the sovereignty of God in Paul's life. There are other things we're going to see, but it's important for us. Now, when the Romans intervene and arrest Paul and protect him from the people, they bring him to the barracks. And there they are going to interrogate him. But Paul asks the tribune if he can speak. Now what we learn is the tribune tries to discern whether or not he is an Egyptian Jew 
who is a terrorist. And Josephus, who writes about history in Palestine during this time, acknowledges that there was an Egyptian Jew who led a terrorist group of several thousand people. And what they would do is assassinate political figures. So folks, terrorism that we've just been introduced to in the last decade has been something the world has been living with for centuries. Once the tribune discerns that Paul is not this man, he allows Paul to speak. And Paul wisely speaks, not in the common language of the people of of that day throughout the world, but he wisely speaks in the local language of the Palestinians. He speaks in Aramaic, and the crowd becomes silent to listen. Every Jew in that crowd spoke Aramaic. Paul begins by telling the people that he is a good Jew just like them. He says that he's born in Tarsus, but raised in Jerusalem. And that he studies under Gamaliel, which was the foremost rabbi of his time, the leader of the school of Hillel. Let's read now together what he says. In verse 3 of chapter 22. I am a Jew, born in, in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. He's talking about being a Pharisee now. The largest group. Being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Then Paul tells everyone that he was a zealous Jew. That in fact, as a zealous Jew, he persecuted Christians. Not only putting them in prison, but condemning them to death. Let's read now verses 4 and 5. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul may even be saying to the people, I'm not just zealous like you. I'm more zealous than you. Right? I'm one of the guys who was on the front lines of this. Then Paul tells everyone that God intervened to change the trajectory of his life. Paul didn't just change it. God intervened to change the trajectory of his life. His conversion was the initiative of the Lord. Let's read verses 6 through 11. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus... About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? 
And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul here is affirming the sovereignty of God over him. By the way, as Christians, that's precisely what we believe, that God is sovereign over us and all things. Now Paul turns in his address to tell of another. He tells of a devout Jew, Ananias, who can testify to these events. So he's already talked about the chief priests who could testify that he was not only a Jew who was raised in Jerusalem and sat under Gamaliel and persecuted Christians. Now he's telling them about Ananias. So they can get evidence to corroborate his story. Let's read verses 12 through 16. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see his righteousness and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul says that this man, Ananias, was not only a devout observer of the law, but he was highly respected by the Jews. Paul now continues to talk about the change and the trajectory of his life as a result. Paul tells them that he has a vision in the temple. And there, as God tells him to leave Jerusalem, Paul is arguing with them. I, I could do better work here. I, I've been here for a long time. People know me. I stood against the followers of the way. Now I can stand with them and people will hear that. And God says, no. And he sends Paul away to the Gentiles. Now what you're going to notice in this is that the crowd did not get riled up at the name of Jesus. The crowd got riled up at the mention of Gentiles. Within the crowd, there were two groups. There were Orthodox Jews who saw what Paul was doing as an abomination. And there were Judaizers who were Pharisees who had come to believe Jesus was the Messiah, but who rejected the church's ruling 
that Gentiles did not have to take upon themselves the law. They didn't have to convert to Judaism. All they needed to do was to trust the Messiah and abstain from behaviors that were associated with the worship of false gods and idols. Both wanted to stop Paul. Believers and unbelievers. They were part of the crowd. But Paul knew that he was walking into difficult times. He knew that coming to Jerusalem meant hardship. He said to the elders, or rather, the elders said to him when Paul got there, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. He's talking about Judaizers here. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs, which is not true, but nevertheless is the accusation. So the Judaizers aligned with the Orthodox Jews. And essentially what they said was accepting Gentiles without making them Jews was not only an abomination, but it was worthy of death. And the reason for that is because what was being said was that Gentiles were equal to Jews. Jews were not superior to Gentiles in the eyes of God. And they saw that as a rejection of Moses and the law and all that God had given to them. They said, it is unacceptable and worthy of death. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now at this point, what we read is the crowd goes wild. And the tribute puts an end to it right away. Understand, the Romans were very serious about the, uh, the Pax Romanus, the Roman peace. You did not interrupt the Roman peace. They did not want that to be challenged because that meant that they would lose control of their empire. So when there was rioting or there was disruption, soldiers came in and squashed it. And if you were in a place where that was stirring up and there weren't soldiers, they would send soldiers to go there and stay there. We saw that at Ephesus when one of the city officials said, you don't want the soldiers to come here. Let's follow the rule of law. The tribune has Paul taken into the barracks. And there he's to be interrogated. And Dr. Luke says that their interrogation was to be examined by flogging. Now why would they interrogate somebody and flog them? Any idea? Because they didn't believe they were going to get the truth. And they figured, you put a guy in enough paint, he's going to tell you the truth. Part of what we know is you put a guy into pain, he'll tell you whatever you want. 
But Paul speaks up as they're preparing to tie him down, bind him, and flog him. And essentially what he says is, I'm a Roman citizen. And I am being denied due process as a Roman citizen. This is a serious offense. Paul is a Roman citizen because he was born in the free city of Tarsus. And those who were born in the free cities throughout the Roman Empire, those cities had supported Rome and been like Rome and were a part of Rome. And so they were afforded the privileges of Rome. And those who were born there were afforded the privilege of being a citizen. Immediately, they unbound Paul, but kept him under arrest. And the tribune called for a hearing with the chief priests, the council, and Paul to get to the bottom of what was happening. Now, the question in all of this is, what can we learn today and apply into our lives? And while there are probably a great many things that we can learn today, I believe that one of those things that is important is about the sovereignty of God, that the sovereignty of God will prevail in our lives if we are living as disciples of Jesus. Paul was warned not to go to Jerusalem several times, but he was determined, and he told the elders from Ephesus that he was going, but he knew that he would face arrest and persecution and death. He knew this through the Holy Spirit, yet he also believed it was part of God's sovereign will. It was part of God's plan for him. It was the tapestry that God was weaving. And it was part of the thread that he was weaving into that tapestry that would be awesome and beautiful that we can think of as the redemption of humanity and creation and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth with all things under God. When Paul kept his eye upon the big story the story that God was writing, that he was weaving into this tapestry. Paul was not looking at the little story of his life. He wasn't wrapped up in the concerns of his everyday life and, and putting that in a compartment away from God. It wasn't just about what was happening to him. The pain, the hurt, the struggle. The fact that it might not happen and God had said that he would, he would testify to kings. But he could die in Jerusalem. Paul didn't take the matter into his hands. He trusted God and the sovereignty of God. He trusted God's bigger story. And that's why he went to Jerusalem. It had to be difficult for Paul. The truth is, when I think about this, it points to how I often fail to live my life. I try to see it all in the big picture, but there are times when I'm living in the little story of my life, and I don't see God weaving it into this great tapestry. Instead, I just see myself. 
apart from God. And to be sure, that's precisely what the evil one, Satan, wants to happen. He wants you to see your life as disconnected from the sovereign will of God. But that didn't happen to Paul. And the reason it didn't happen to Paul was because Paul affirmed God's sovereign will. He affirmed it in his account of the conversion. He affirmed it in the account of his calling. He affirmed it in the mission that he was living as he spoke this out to the crowd. By God's grace, Paul said to them that God had been, God was, and God would continue to be superintending over his life. Now this is not just true of Paul, but it is true for all of God's people. As we live as God's disciples in the Lordship of Jesus, we still face difficulties and disappointments. We need to trust that God is superintending over our lives and that he will prevail. We are tempted to see it from a momentary perspective, disconnected from God, as the world does. Evil wants to convince us to be apart from God and cut off from God. And for those of you who say, okay, here's the pastor up here going, the devil made me do it. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that there are real forces in the world. There is God and there are the forces of darkness and evil, and we have to deal with them. And evil wants to cut us off from God. He wants us to get emotional and to react. And based upon our feelings and fears, to just create more spin around ourselves in the little story of our lives instead of bringing it to the Lord and choosing to trust God's sovereignty over what's happening, over what we're feeling, over the patterns we're involved in. And when we feel things are senseless and meaningless and they discourage us, evil wants us to disconnect from God and spin in ourselves into our own depression instead of bringing it to the Lord and choosing to trust His sovereignty over us. If we are to emulate Paul and to trust in the sovereignty of God, then we must remind ourselves of God's sovereignty in our life, beginning with the saving faith of Jesus. And we, as disciples of Jesus, must remind ourselves of God's sovereignty, not only in the present circumstances of our life, but in the future of our life as well. And if we will do this, we will be better at seeing the events and circumstances of our life through the lens of God. Trusting God to prevail sovereignly over us and using us, weaving us into the tapestry that He is making. Today, as we welcomed Alex and his family, 
we have an opportunity to acknowledge and trust God's sovereignty in calling Alex to our church. In fact, I can assure you, that was one of the driving questions. What is it that God wants? We can disagree, but that was one of the driving questions. We will all face difficulty, hardship, and disappointment on many, many levels. I've told you before just a bit about the journey that Marsh and I went through. How at 19 she had been raped. How she had buried that. How we met, got married. I had no clue about it. She didn't either. It was underground. And seven years into our marriage, it starts to surface. And it created such chaos in our life. It was so difficult. We were a hair's breadth away from divorce. Yet God intervened because He is able. And with the help of Christian counselors, the Spirit of God, and our willingness to let Jesus be the Lord not only of our lives, but of our marriage. God did a great redemptive thing. It took more than five years for us to be able to talk about it and come through the other side of the the hurt and the hardship and the difficulty. And when we did, we looked at each other and said, I wouldn't change a thing. I don't want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I appreciate you and love you. And God has done an incredible thing. And one of the things that we didn't know was how God would use us in the lives of people since then. Unbelievably, the number of people who have been sexually molested, hurt, raped, whatever, is enormous. Check the statistics out for yourself. It's just a reality of life. And honestly, we can sensitively talk with adults, with teens, and we have to help them begin that journey toward healing, to let God all the way in, to encourage them to get that help from Christian counselors who can assist them through that. And with the help of the church, just as Marsh and I had, and through the Holy Spirit, they too can become whole and healthy. By God's grace, we trusted. And God formed in us something new. Now honestly, since then, when the big things come into my life, I know they're way beyond me. So I got no issue with going straight to God. I don't pass go. I don't collect $200. I go right to God. I know I need God. But let me tell you where I get in trouble. It's in the little things in my life. The things that I can handle, I'm busy handling. And pretty soon I'm handling more. And then I'm handling more. 
And then I'm handling more. And I don't know how I got to be handling so many things. And I'm the guy with the plates spinning them all, trying to keep them from falling. In part, I've done some of that to myself. In part, that's happened as a result of life. It's under the sovereignty of God. God didn't make it happen, but He allowed it. Why? You want my take on it? Because I won't learn boundaries. That's my take on it. It's probably more than that, but that's a big one for me. And one of the things that I have to do is learn to trust the sovereignty of God. Not get so worked up in myself, but know that God's in charge. Know that He's doing something and know that He's going to help me grow to be Jesus to others. It's important that we learn to trust God in the big things and the little things. And trust and affirm His sovereignty over it all. Now perhaps the big things in life are overwhelming you, then let me say to you, trust God. His sovereign purpose for you if you believe Jesus truly is the Messiah. And if it's the little things in life that add up and all of a sudden you find yourself overwhelmed, trust God. Trust His sovereignty and His sovereign purpose over you. And if you don't have the assurance of God's saving love through Jesus, then what I want you to know is that God loves you. You see, God came to earth and took on the form of human flesh. His name is Jesus. And he came to be the suffering servant to pay the debt for our sins. He died on a cross out of love for you. And He wants to restore you to a relationship with your Creator. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be woven into the fabric of this great redemptive tapestry for all of creation. He wants you to be part of his forever family because you matter to him. Folks, we may not be able to see our part in God's tapestry right now, but he promises us that we will. He promises us that you and I will see all that God is doing. Not just a little picture of our life, but the big, broad picture in the expanse of eternity. Today we have the privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is to us a symbol of what God has done and is at the center of God's redemptive tapestry that he is creating. It is possible because of what God has done in the cross. 
we remember this. As we remember Jesus bringing his disciples together in an upper room. And there, he took the bread and he took the cup. And when he gave it to them, he said, do this in remembrance of me. All who humbly place their trust in Christ are invited to draw near and partake of this Holy Communion. We do so today not because we must, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, nor because we have any claim on heaven's reward, but because we recognize that we stand in the constant need of God's mercy and help and intervention. That we are under his sovereign will and plan for us. So today, as you prepare to receive communion, I would ask you to just prayerfully reflect upon God's sovereign love for you and what Jesus has done in the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We ask now that you would consecrate the elements of the bread and the cup we know, Lord, they are but symbols of the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ that is shed for us to assuage your wrath against sin so that we may be forgiven, we may be welcomed into your presence. We affirm that you are sovereign over all of this. And we thank you for that sovereignty. Lord Jesus, be present with us now. We gratefully receive these elements. And as we do, I would ask all of you to just simply hold on to them. Will the uh, communion servers please come forward?